No, I'm not Mike Gendron. You're like, no. The hurricane has made him change his uh, schedule, so he'll be here on September 29th. Hopefully all of you will mark your calendars for that. Um, because it will be good. Uh, but in the Lord's providence, uh, he has given me opportunity to continue on in Matthew 13 uh, and being ready in season and in hurricane season. I'm here to preach the gospel. The title of the message is A Prophet Without Honor. The Prophet Without Honor. In Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58, Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah of Israel, has been presented to his people Israel. God had prophesied that a descendant of David would come to redeem his people, had promised that through the descendants of Abraham, one would come that would bring blessing to everyone in him. And Jesus, the Son of God, had come into the world through a virgin named Mary. And Mary and Joseph were both in the lineage of David. We've seen this so far in Matthew. After a relatively discreet childhood, teenage years, and even his 20s, Jesus had grown up in Nazareth. It appears that Jesus' father by marriage only, Joseph, had passed away before Jesus had started his ministry. When Jesus started his ministry, it was accompanied by many miracles, authoritative sermons, and deliverance of demon-possessed people. He was questioned by the religious elites of his day, and then... He was rejected by them as well as, as well as his own hometown early in his ministry as revealed in Luke chapter 6. Some say that our passage today is a parallel to Luke chapter 6, but I don't think so. I think it's a second trip into his hometown. In Luke chapter 6, it, it reveals that he, they tried to throw him off the, uh, off the local mountain when he had preached in their synagogue and taught in their synagogue. But I do think Jesus comes back into the town and begins to teach again. Jesus had revealed he was the incarnate Son of God by what he had said and what he had done. He was, the, he was fulfilling the Old Testament prophets and what the prophets had foretold of the Messiah. He was speaking like no one has ever spoken. He was perfect, sinless, Righteous in everything he did his entire life. There were no selfish moments in Jesus' life. There were no prideful arguments. There were no evil thoughts towards anyone his entire life from infancy to adulthood. He was wisdom and righteousness incarnate. But Jesus, or that is but Israel rejected Jesus, and her leaders weren't buying who Jesus was. They didn't believe in him. They were unwilling to submit to his authority. There was only a small remnant of disciples who sought Jesus with a regenerate heart. 
In fact, the religious leaders had concocted a lie about Jesus that was blasphemous to the triune God. When the people showed a hint of embracing Jesus, they blasphemed the Son of God and the Spirit of God that was at work in Him. And look over at Matthew chapter 12, very key section in the Gospel of Matthew as well as the life of, and, and ministry of Jesus. Matthew 12, verse 23. In Matthew 12, verse 23, it states, All the crowds were amazed, astonished, in awe, and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? In other words, there's this question, maybe, possibly? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So what did they do? They blasphemed. They basically said that what Jesus was doing, his acts were from the devil. From this point on, Jesus pronounces a judgment upon these religious leaders and anyone who embraced their lie. Jesus states in Matthew 12, 30 to 32, notice, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin of blasphemy shall be forgiven, people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. This was that blasphemy that he was talking about. I believe very clearly that they had attributed his works to Beelzebul, the devil. And he had basically pronounced judgment that they could not be forgiven. They were now under the judgment of God in light of their rejection of Christ and what he had done and saying that it was Beelzebul that had done it through him. From this point on, Jesus begins to speak in parables. The parables we saw last time and and for the last six weeks or so explain the kingdom of heaven and to those who were Jesus' disciples. Jesus explained what his kingdom was all about. But the parables also kept the truth from those who were rejecting him and the source of his message in the miracles. In other words, they had rejected, so now he speaks in parables and it keeps them from knowing the truth. And it's actually an uh, a, a act of judgment that they are kept from knowing the truth. A lack of faith from the majority brought judgment from the Messiah. Israel was in fact beginning its rejection of its Messiah. He withheld truth from them then. Now to be clear, he had given them overwhelming evidence and proof of who he was previously. We know this. He had shown them over and over and over that he was the Messiah. But they had rejected him. This rejection was also part of the plan of God, wasn't it? Their rejection was part of God's ultimate predetermined plan that through the rejection of the Messiah, there would become hope for the Gentiles. And that through his death, burial, and resurrection, God could then save a people for himself. 
God was fulfilling this. What he had prophesied through the Old Testament prophets, as Isaiah 53 talks about, and that's Psalm 118 talks about, and that's Psalm 22 talks about. The stone which the builders rejected had become, or was becoming, the chief cornerstone. A rock of offense, a rock of offense, and a stone of stumbling. Through his rejection, and through their rejection rather, of him, they would stumble over him. They would be offended by him, and therefore we would find salvation through Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Bad things were happening to the only good person. All for the purpose of saving people for himself. Over the last five weeks in Matthew 13, we saw Jesus revealed the kingdom of heaven to his own in these parables. We learned there were hidden elements of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom was only embraced by some, not everybody. The ones who were kingdom citizens were sown next to unbelievers by the parable of the wheat and the tares. The kingdom was growing from relative insignificance to, in its beginning to a great kingdom, a people, a citizens that God had chosen. In other words, through Jesus' small beginning and insignificant in, in light of the world and how they saw Him, it would grow into a great kingdom. And then there would be a separation of the kingdom and citizens from the unbelievers and the rejectors. This would happen at the final judgment. There will be, and Jesus talked about this kingdom to come and that one day the kingdom will be separated and that there will be a, a distinction between those who are kingdom citizens and those who aren't. But being part of the kingdom, sixth, of this kingdom, would be such a huge blessing for God's own that nothing would be more important than being a part of this kingdom and knowing Christ. And for all of us in the room that are kingdom citizens and know Christ, there is nothing more important than that, right? Knowing Him and being a part of that kingdom. All of this was Jesus' message to His disciples. As we see in 1351, look at it. In 1351, Jesus says, Have you understood all these things? And they said to Him, Yes, talking to His disciples. Here we see the disciples understood at least to some level these great kingdom truths. They were getting it a little bit at least. They thought they got it completely. But we'll find out as we go along that they didn't get it all. In fact, as we will see in 15, 20, uh, 12 and 19, through 19, in Matthew 15, 12 to 19, in this next section, the disciples didn't get it really at all. Other than that, he's a king and there's a kingdom coming. It's all they basically got. They were still a work in progress. And much of the kingdom promises weren't fully understood by them until after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We know from Luke, the end of Luke, where it says that Jesus was talking walking on the road to Emmaus. Y'all remember that? And he opened their minds that they may understand all that the Scripture said concerning him. Most of the disciples had somewhat of an understanding that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, but that was it. They couldn't get the whole big picture. They didn't understand that the king would be rejected and that then a kingdom would come and it would come 
first to its citizens and then later he would return to establish his kingdom. But the disciples had regenerate hearts though. And they were followers of Jesus even if they weren't fully informed. And so when Jesus starts to give out some really hard truths like in John chapter 6, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, many of them went away, right? But the ones who were truly disciples of his that were regenerate, they said, where else do we go? You have the words of eternal life. Even though we don't really completely get it, yes, we understand. Not really. We're going to still follow you. We're going to still follow you. Jesus exhorted his disciples in verse 52 that they are basically the scribes of their day. What he means by that is they, they were the learned. They were the ones that were really getting the truth and they were supposed to then share that truth. Look at verse 52. And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of household who brings out the treasures, things new and old. They were called to share the truth of the old and the new. The old covenant and the old promises, the Old Testament that had pointed forward to Christ. And all the promises included in that. And the new that they were starting to kind of get and understand. And really, they were the scholars of their day. Isn't it interesting who they picked to be the scribes? The real scribes. Some fishermen? A tax collector? A zealot? Interesting. But they were to go and then proclaim these truths. And as this all unfolded in Matthew, they were going to see more and more of who he was and what he was all about, and therefore they were going to be called to go out and proclaim this truth and make disciples, as the book of Matthew is all about. Making disciples of Jesus is a call to spread this truth that they had learned and embraced. They were to make followers of King Jesus. But as great as it was that the disciples were learning and following Jesus, they were a small minority, weren't they? A really small group. Matthew, the writer, picks back up on this theme of Jesus' overall rejection in verses 53 to 58. I think it's significant that before the kingdom parables were introduced, Jesus had a small encounter with his family. Do you remember this? Back in chapter 12, his family, he was talking, and they were outside. Remember, they were outside? And he, they were at the house. Look over at 1246. I want you to see this because he goes back to his hometown where all of his family members are. It's very interesting to me. I don't know, and I can't prove this. This is one of those, eh, maybe. Maybe it's at this point he gets back to them. They had come to him at the house. He didn't go out then. He said, you're my father and mother and brothers, you that are rightly related to me. And then he gives the kingdom parables, and then he makes his way to Nazareth. Back to Nazareth, here. Interesting. But look at 1246 again, just to refresh our memory. While he was still speaking to the crowd, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, 
He is my brother and sister and mother. What's he saying? Basically, he's saying, and we saw, that the most important relationship is not a physical relationship. The most important relationship is being related to him properly and to know God as your father and to be rightly related to me. That's the most important relationship. And he basically says that to them. This is the most important relationship. It's more important than your mother, your wife, your family, anybody there. He's saying it again, isn't he? I think it's significant that Jesus points to the more important relationship of being rightly related to him over being one of his physical relatives. And then he gives the, the parables. And he points to this great new relationship, doesn't he? In the kingdom. Remember, we talked last time about how this understanding of the kingdom, how we are now rightly related to the Father. Remember, look over at Matthew 13. Remember, we talked about this last time. In the middle of the explanation of the separation and talking about the those that are evil from those that are kingdom citizens, he says this, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Remember, we talked about how this was the great truth of being in a right relationship with God as being a part of this tremendous kingdom to come. Now, we come to a very important truth to understand and embrace. What we have in King Jesus, what we have in knowing Him, makes living in this world that rejects us and our King not only bearable, but joyful. It's a privilege to be considered a child of the King, a child of God. We can now call out Abba Father. That's a great privilege, isn't it? So let me ask you a question. Is selling everything to follow Jesus worth it? Yes. Is being rejected by your own family worth it? Yes. Is being mocked by the world worth it? What about your co-workers? What about your boss? Well, here comes the great news. Yes, it's worth it. Because by knowing Christ, we're in right relationship with God. We are considered righteous, reckoned righteous, and God is now our Father, and we now can serve Him and enjoy Him forever in the kingdom to come. And we can look no other place to see this great worth than our own King. I want you to listen closely. Let's get the context for our passage today. Just a little bit more. Let me ask you a question. How important is your family and your upbringing and your, your early life and all the things that happened in your life? How important is that to you? Are you like me? I'm going to confess it. It just happens my mom's right in front of me too. She's right in the back row right there. I see you. Are you like me? There is just nothing like going home. I remember even in college, I remember the greatest time was going home on the weekends because the food. It was wonderful. 
Brenda and I kind of kid each other often when we travel back to our hometowns where we were brought up. I have to admit, I'm probably worse than Brenda. I love to go to Lakeland. I know you're like, really? You like Lakeland? Yes, I like Lakeland. I love to drive by my old house where I was raised. I, I love to drive by my old schools. I remember, you know, all the things, you know, you drive by. You, oh, I, I remember that. That's cool. I drive by my old house and think about the swimming pool that's in the backyard. I like to go to Lakeland High School football games. Still today, I go at least, I try to go once a year and reminisce about the band. Every time I see, every time I see David Quarter up here playing the trumpet, I think about my old life playing the trumpet. I love it that we have a trumpet player that sits right in front of me and plays right in front of me. I hear every note, by the way, David. You're like, oh, no. I just love to reminisce about band and all those things. I know you're thinking, man, what are you doing? Why are you talking about this? There's just something about family, right? And hometowns and our early years that many of us like to hold on to. Now, obviously, I know there's some in the room that that might not be true for you. That there are things that are that you don't want to hold on to your story. But as a general rule, as a general rule, most of us like to think about our old life, right? And those things and reminisce on the good things. Families definitely aren't perfect. But there is a level of loyalty from family and from neighbors and friends and things like that that we're thankful for. So when Jesus makes this statement like... We must choose Him over our family and our friends. When He elevates being a kingdom citizen and a child of God over all relationships in this world, there's a part of us that says what? That's hard. That's not easy. That's a little difficult. I mean, if we're honest, right? I mean, let's, let's face it. Even these, these cultural arguments that were being made in our society today, the cultural arguments, some of the reason why these cultural arguments are being made is because everybody kind of what? Likes their culture to a degree, right? We kind of like to hold on to those things, don't we? Am I the only one? No, everybody, right? I mean, let's be honest. But to say we're aliens and strangers and kingdom citizens and this really isn't our home, we're like, yeah, that's easy for you to say, Jesus. That's easy for you to say. But question, does Jesus understand what he's asking us to do? Does Jesus understand that what he's saying to his disciples, does he get it? Does he understand this, this difficulty of being ripped away from home? The answer is Jesus understands it far better than we do. First and foremost, did Jesus, what happened when Jesus, what did he do? 
He came into the world, but where was He first? He was in glory with His Father. By the way, that's the perfect culture. Perfect. It is perfect there, isn't it? Perfect love, perfect intimacy, perfect righteousness. (laughs) Everybody in that triune God never said anything evil to each other ever. They've always got along perfectly. Yet he took on flesh. And he left the glory that he had with God before, as John 17 states. And he came into this world. And he became a man. He took on flesh. But you know, also in in some amazing ways, the separation that sin causes He experienced that even more, too, than what we have. Why? What did He say from the cross, beloved? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is that? Jesus experienced in some mysterious way a separation from the Father that He had a beautiful relationship with forever. When Jesus says, Get up every, give everything up and follow me, he didn't say, give up everything and follow me and didn't give us the way that, to go. He showed us the way, didn't he? He experienced this kind of hurt and pain, didn't he? Much greater than anything we can comprehend. But, that, but, the, but Mike, that was him and his deity. What about his humanity? Oh, beloved, he experienced it in his humanity also, which brings us to our passage today. So was it worth it for Jesus? The answer is overwhelming. Yes, it was worth it. Why? Because he wanted to redeem a people for himself. He wanted to make it possible that we could cry out, Abba, Father, and we could be His children. He did it to pay for our sins. But as we see in our passage today, we also see Jesus experienced the pain of a break with His own family in His own hometown. Not once, but twice. It's clear from this passage, Jesus' own neighborhood, His boyhood friends, turned on Him... Not once, but twice. Like I said, believe Luke 6 is an account of Jesus' rejection from his own town in Nazareth, but Nazareth but was near the beginning of his ministry. But while this account in 13 and Mark 6 parallel passage happened later on, probably a little over a year before Jesus' death. And by the way, did it hit his own family? Yes, it did. John 7, read it sometime. They know very well that if he goes up to Judea, what's going to happen to him? He could die. What do his brothers say to him? I know you're going up. His brothers? His half-brothers, yes. James, the author of the book of James. Judas, which is probably Jude, the author of the book of Jude. Same ones tell him, going up! Going up! John 7. We need to understand when we face rejection from this world or when we're called to say Jesus over everything in this world, 
our Lord experienced everything we are being called to do plus a million times. That gives me hope. How about you? He understands what I'm going through. He understands what it's like. I went to my... uh, I went to... uh, my, what are those called, uh, alumni thing, you know, reunion. I went to one of my reunions. I remember going to one of my reunions. All my best friends were there from high school. I loved them to death. It was great. Love, several of them were just amazingly close friends with mine. And I remember going to it and being there and being so, feeling so awkward. It was so weird. Everybody was having a blast, and I was sitting there. And it just felt like I was the sore thumb. And I remember seeing everybody, a couple of my friends, several of my friends over talking, and they were all having a good time, you know, drinking and having a blast and stuff. And I thought, I'm going to go over and hang out with my friends. And I walked over and stood up next to them, and everybody got quiet. (laughs) Hey, how are y'all? Good, how are you, Mike? What you been up to? Not much. We're doing okay. How about you? What you been? Well, I'm a pastor now. Uh, we know. <laughs> Needless to say, it wasn't fun. I was like a sore thumb. Nobody wanted to be around me. You could even see them. They were laughing and having a blast and telling all kinds of jokes that I wanted to hear. Or maybe I didn't want to hear. And I walked up and immediately silence. No more joking. Everybody's serious. It felt like my whole friendship, my old early life was ripped from me. Like this is not you anymore. I wish I had this passage. Then I wish I would have thought on this passage before. Because after all, Jesus endured so much more than anything I ever experienced. And yes, thankfully, some of them still talk to me. Some of them might be watching. The reality is, though, most of the time they only come to me when there is a major problem. Thankfully, though, they can come to me when there's a major problem, right? Why? Because we have hope in Christ, don't we? So let's read our passage again and keep that in your mind as we go through it. Because that's what we got to think, right? That's the context that you have to have in your mind as you read this passage. Let's look at it again. When Jesus had finished these parables... He departed from there and he came to his own hometown, his hometown, and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not with us, all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own 
household. And they did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Boy, doesn't it come alive now? Just thinking on that context, understanding that context. It doesn't take a lot of explanation of this passage, does it? But I want you to notice a couple of observations. We'll walk down this real quick. It's really neat. You're going to get some really cool things from this. Look at this passage. First, I want you to notice, Jesus astonished his own hometown. He astonished his own hometown. Now, I want you to take some really important thought concepts here. How many of you have ever gone back to your hometown or talked to some friends or some people in their past, and when you spoke, they said, man, you're really good. You're really, you're a good guy now. I heard one of you this week say that to me. The irony is, is here they are. They're doing what? They're saying, wow, Jesus. They were astonished at him. They marveled at him. He came to his hometown and began to teach in their synagogue so they were, so that they were astonished. They marveled at him. You say, well, they got it. They got it. They got it. No, they didn't. They didn't get it. All they did was they went, yeah, it's obvious something special about this guy. That's all they did. They didn't say, there's something special about this guy. We need to repent and believe in him. We need to follow him. They didn't say that. Oh, listen to me, beloved. You are going to have people tell you, man, you're good. You're kind. It's obvious something there's different about you. I want you to understand that doesn't mean they repented. What that means is, is they recognize God's work in you, but they don't necessarily believe the same way as you. To be astonished does not mean I embrace it. Do you hear me? His hometown was astonished, but they didn't believe. Second, Jesus' wisdom and works are questioned by his own hometown. Now, look closely at verse 54 and 56. They start with a question and they end with a question. And this question is crucial. And I want you to tell me in your mind, not out loud, but in your mind, I want you to think, does this sound familiar? Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Hmm. Where then did this man get all these things? Does that sound familiar? Does it not sound like the Pharisees back in 12? They're questioning. They're questioning. They're not questioning with faith. They're questioning with doubt. They're questioning to look for a way out of submission to Him. They're not looking for a way to believe in Him. They're looking for a way out of believing in Him. You say, where is that? Look closely. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? What would the Pharisees say? Beelzebul. Beelzebul. Because if he cat it from God, what must they do? They must repent and believe. 
They must bow to Him. Because Lord Jesus is in their midst. And what did they do to Jesus? They took Him and they did this in order to justify it. No, they didn't say Beelzebul, but boy, did they do the same exact thing. They said, but He's just a man like us. Woo, did you see that? He's just a man like us. Where you say that? Look at it. Third observation. Jesus' identity is questioned by his own hometown. Look what they said. Is not this the carpenter's son? What? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? What are they saying about Jesus here? They're saying, in effect, He's a man like us. There's nothing special about Him. Uh Uh-uh. I know His source of authority and power. I know His source of authority. He's just Mary and Joseph's kid. He's just a carpenter's son. By the way, in this culture and in this society during that time, being a carpenter's son meant what? Most likely you were a carpenter. How does this carpenter speak with this wisdom? How does he do these miracles? He can't be. No, I know his brothers. You can just think what they're thinking. You can know. They're thinking, oh yeah, I've played with James a couple hundred times, and that James, buddy, he can be tough. He's just a brother of James. By the way, how long was Jesus in this hometown? Years. Probably somewhere between... 20 and 30 years he was in this hometown. Now this, was, this wasn't a big city, beloved. Do You know, everybody knew everybody. Now wait a second. I want you to think on that for a second. Why wasn't he known as the Messiah already? Did he not tell anybody? He did no miracles for 20-something years. Contrary to the Roman Catholics that say that he raised a bird from the dead or something like that. No. There's no evidence at all that he did any miracles. Was he in sin by being silent? No. He never sinned. Uh oh. Boy, this doesn't fit in our worldview, does it? <laughs> kind of chasing a little bit. Think through this a second. They saw him and he didn't say much. He was just obedient to the Father's will for him. And it didn't mean a lot of chatter. He probably followed in his father, his stepfather. You understand what I mean by stepfather, right? I don't have to define that, right? Joseph wasn't his real father. You understand that. 
probably just was a carpenter. And now he's speaking wisdom and doing miracles. He had no stately form or majesty. Do you understand? This means that he probably... I, I know what they're thinking. Don't you know what they're thinking? They're probably thinking, oh, come on, you put your pants on just like us. Maybe not Pat's a robe or whatever. <laughs> you got the same hair color. You look like me. We all look the same. Come on. You're just a man. You don't have this authority. But beloved, the hardest part about embracing authority over us is when we don't think that person's worthy of it. Ooh, did you hear that? The hardest part about embracing or submitting to authority is when we don't think that person is worthy of it. When we grow up near someone, we have a real problem with hearing truth from people above us. Unless we're seeing things biblically. Why do kids often not hear what their parents have to say? Same reason. They see our faults. They see who we are. And they think, uh-uh. You're just like me. And familiarity breeds contempt. Why do older people struggle hearing from even wise younger people? <laughs> hey, I've done this. I've done this radio. You haven't been here yet. I can't hear you. Vice versa, it happens the other way too, doesn't it? You just don't know where I am. I know a lot more. I got the internet. I mean, I know how to get my way around on a smartphone. You can't. What are we doing? Same thing. Why do old friends and neighbors not want to hear from us? Because they think we're no different than them. In fact, when someone close to us, or even real close to us, Speaking wisdom to us, we can often struggle to embrace their truth. Now, listen closely. Everybody pay close attention. A warning here. This passage should not be used as a beat stick for making others to do and do what we want them to do and listen to what we want them to listen to. Hear me. Don't use that this that way. Why? Well, because one, Jesus is God incarnate, and we're not. Second, any authority that we have is ultimately from God, and we're supposed to point to the ultimate authority anyway, right? And ultimately, as parents... Anytime we're not pointing our kids or anybody to the authority of Christ and what God's Word says, we're really just kind of exerting our own 
personal authority. We have to be careful of that. At the same time, we need to be humble enough to hear what God's Word says to all of us wherever we are. Correct? We aren't prophets, are we? You know how many times we... I've quoted it too. I admit it. Here we go. Confession time. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. I've quoted it. The proper response next time I quote it to you is what? You're not a prophet. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'm not a prophet. And neither are you. A prophet spoke the revealed truth of God. And only when we speak what it says are we speaking what he says. Now I can give you wisdom, but I better be very careful that my wisdom is not just me. Boy, does that humble everybody in the room? I was humbled thinking through this. We aren't the Messiah either, are we? But we know what he said. And so when we speak, I speak. I'm telling you what I believe this passage says. And so you have a problem and it's not me. It's God. You need to embrace Jesus Christ. You know why? Because his word says he's the Messiah. The authority is where? It's here. It's not me. Do you understand? Our households and our neighbors may not like what we say when we speak this truth. But we can't take it personal. We also need to stand on God's authoritative word no matter what. Even if they reject us. But look how Jesus' hometown responded to him. Look at verse 57. Fourth. And they took offense at him. Now. This is a very important phrase. And they took offense at him. You know that word offense? It's where we get our word scandal from. The Greek word, scandal. They were scandalized over him. They took offense at him. Why is it important? Oh, beloved, it's important because it's part of the great plan of God. It's, the, it's amazing. This is it. Their offense is actually why we are here today. Their rejection, their offense, their scandalized over Him is why we have opportunity to be saved through Christ. How do I know? Oh, because 1 Peter chapter 2. Oh, it's not on there, is it? Is it? No, it's not. Oh, yeah, it is. There it is. What am I doing? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The same term. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were appointed. Who is he talking about? The Jews that were rejecting him. They were scandalized over him. They were, he was a rock of offense to them. Why? Because it was part of God's plan. 
Why was it God, part of God's plan? To save a people for Himself that we could be a chosen race, a holy people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. That we might proclaim the excellencies of Him. 1 Peter chapter 2. Their offense over Him was all part of God's plan so that we could be redeemed. You say, is anybody in here saying, or is anybody in here going, that's hard. Yeah. Everybody in the room should be saying, why me? Why do I see him as the pearl of great price, or at least the kingdom as the pearl of great price, and the king who is over that kingdom? Why not? Why me? Why do I think that Christ is so great and I want to live for Him and enjoy Him forever? Why me? Why isn't He offensive to me? Answer, God's grace. God's amazing grace. Because we were not a people, but now we are a people. We did not have eyes to see. We were in darkness, but he has brought us into his great light. Do you think it's going to be any different for us if it was this way for him? No, it's not. Whatever he goes through, we're probably going to go through if we're still in this world and the kingdom's not here, right? Notice Jesus exposes their heart, finally. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Jesus quotes this proverb, and it was generally true, obviously not always true, because if it was always true, why did Jeremiah the prophet get killed? Why did they stone the prophets? It's a general truth that someone who is speaking of and for God with the authority of God, they get honor. They get honor. Except where? In his own hometown and in his own household. Prophets were honored because the people knew where they were from and who they spoke for. They spoke for God, so we better give him honor. Prophets were God's spokesmen, so they received this honor from the normal person. In general, prophets were respected. These are principles. This is a proverb that's a principle. But there was an exception to even the general principle. Hometown neighbors and prophets of their own household. The prophet's own household. The people closest to the prophet. They were just too close. The people closest saw themselves as no different than the prophet. Again, he puts his pants on the same way we do. He looks like us. His brothers and his sisters are just like us. Come on, we're married to some of his sisters, is what it's implied. I'm just as good as he is, is what the person closest to the prophet says. This wasn't true, but this was the heart of a lost person, right? 
A person that's unregenerate thinks everyone is no better than them. I want you to hear me. I want you to listen closely. A person that is lost or unregenerate thinks everybody around them is no better than them. That they're at least as good as everybody else. What is this? This is the heart of a heart that's trying to what? Self-righteously promote themselves. By the way, we're all tempted to go back into this, aren't we? Have you ever asked this question? Who are you to who are you to tell me what I need to do? Have you ever said that? Same thing. Same thing. Who are you? I know you. Just like you. By the way, isn't this the problem with hearing truth from others too? For all of us even. Our pride gets in the way, doesn't it? This pride came from unbelieving hearts. Notice, and he did not do many miracles there because their unbelief. By the way, this is not name it and claim it garbage. This isn't, oh, the reason why you're not healed is because your faith isn't big enough. That is garbage. That's not what the point is here. The point here is is that Jesus is saying, in effect, they weren't believers. They didn't work. He was judging them just like what? He had judged the Pharisees. This was evidence of judgment. That they had rejected him. And so therefore what? No more revelation of God to you. They were under the judgment of God. They didn't want Jesus to be Lord over them. Just like the Pharisees didn't want him to be over them. So what are we supposed to learn from this? Jesus astonishes his own hometown. Jesus' wisdom and works were questioned by his own hometown. Jesus' identity was questioned by his own hometown. Jesus was a rock of offense to his own hometown. Jesus exposed the heart of the problem in his hometown. Unbelief. That's what we're supposed to learn from the passage. So how does it apply to us? Here's a few. First and foremost, don't make the same mistake Jesus' hometown did. (laughs) Bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace Him. He was a man, but He is also God. He's the Lord. God Almighty came into the world to save sinners like me and you. Let's repent and believe in Him. First. Second. If Jesus was rejected by His own, we shouldn't be shocked if the world doesn't embrace our love of Jesus and submission to Him. If everybody thinks you're great, everybody in the world likes you, might be a problem. What? Yes. Because we're with King Jesus, which means what? Most of the world doesn't like him. By the way, that's why we can't just make the church about growing for the sake of making everybody feel comfortable. 
Because that would be the opposite, wouldn't it? The Bible presents a totally different picture of evangelism. Confrontation. Don't be shocked. Third, remember whose authority we appeal to. God and His Word, not our own. Because if not, we could find ourselves doing what? Just like His hometown did against those that had the Word. I think this is something that we should probably camp on, but I don't have time, so we'll, we'll finish. But I think this is something that we all should think on a lot more. Beloved, if you have a problem with the Word of God and you have a problem of what's being preached, if I'm sticking to the text, your problem is with God, it's not with me. Do you understand? If I'm a faithful pastor, all I'm doing is telling you what this says. When I get outside of this, then what am I doing? Pontificating. You can just throw that out. Did you hear me? But if we're sticking to this, the problem that you have is with God. It's not with us. The same goes with counseling, doesn't it? Does everybody understand? The authority is ultimately God and His Word, not the counselor. Remember who's the authority we appeal to. Fourth, we are all prone to miss the truth because of our pride. That blinds us to the truth. Truth? What do we need? We need a Savior. Thankfully, He came into the world to die for us. Came into the world to die for prideful people like us. What's the difference between us and Nazareth? You ready? It's one word. Grace. Grace. Why do we follow Jesus? Because God is good. And He saves sinners like us. Who's the hero in this room? Jesus. When? At the beginning, in the middle, in the end. All the time. He's the hero. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your kindness towards us. Thank you for Christ, our Savior. Help us, Lord, to be bold, courageous, Speak the truth in love, depending upon you, exalting your authority, not our own. You are the one that is worthy of all worship and praise and honor and glory. God, please protect us from robbing you of your glory. Help us not to make it about us. Help our lives to be about you. Thank you, Christ, for coming to the world to die to pay for our prideful sin. Thank you, Lord, for saving us and including us in your family. Thank you for your plan, God. The only question we have is why us, God? We don't deserve it. We deserve your wrath, yet your mercy is new every morning. We praise you and thank you for this great truth. Help us to be humble servants of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.